Let's give the date and the time, and then we'll get rolling. Uh, it's June 13th. I'm trapped by the hose here. June 13th, 2010, lecture discussion number two on the book of Romans, and that's number two. Last week was more or less introductory, so today will be the actual beginning, and, and that means it's going to be uh, more or less introductory. So we'll have a couple of weeks of introductory here. Uh, last week, I actually threw in uh, uh, Russia, Turkey, and Iran, and I don't know if I mentioned Saudi Arabia, but Israel and Saudi Arabia are now negotiating to do what? Have you been paying attention to that? What are they doing? Current events here at Cliffside. Saudi Arabia is going to allow Israel an air corridor by which to fly their bombers towards Iran. That's extraordinary. I'm sorry if I said Iraq. I meant Iran. Russia, Turkey, and Iran. There was a UN resolution to penalize Iran for continuing their nuclear facilities development. And then right after that U.N. resolution that we were all so proud of, Russia, Turkey, and Iran got together and said it had no more value than filthy rags. And there's a, it's a, it's a dirty handkerchief is what Ahmadinejad called it. It's the U.N. resolution. Was he right about that, by the way? Oh, yeah, he was right about that. So immediately Saudi Arabia responds by telling Israel that they can have a overflight corridor across Saudi Arabia by which they can bomb those nuclear facilities. Now, that's what's happening over there. That's all Ezekiel 38. That could be very, very, very interesting as time goes by. If nothing else, pay attention to Ezekiel 38. It's a pre-tribulational event. It's a pre-tribulational prophecy. It's been there for a thousand years or better. And... Uh, up to this point, no one ever even considered that it could happen, and it could happen in your lifetime. Pre-tribulational, because there's seven years of burying dead and seven years of burning weaponry or fuel uh, that occurs by Israel when this army comes down, and that uh, that's not going to go into the tribulation. So that has to occur before the tribulation, which, uh, as you know, the rapture is imminent. And it could be a post or pre-rapture event, Ezekiel 38. Most believe it's a post-rapture event because why? Rapture will do what? Take out the American military. And so if the American military doesn't respond, Israel is very vulnerable. Anyway, all of that just because it's kind of interesting to see. And it means that, that uh, um, now would be the time to get a car payment. I'm kidding about that. Nobody laughed. I really do think that it's very, very close, and I wouldn't be at all surprised to see the Middle East erupt into war. How did you feel? Does anybody remember the 1967-day war specifically? Some of you don't. Six-day war. I remember when it was going. It was amazing. Vietnam was really the first war. I was 15, I believe. Vietnam was the first war that was on television so much. But uh, you remember the Gulf War, don't you? And you remember the latest Iraq War, of course. Uh, that's extraordinary. And if that happens with Israel running bombing raids towards Iran, do you have any idea what's going to happen next? Why would Saudi Arabia allow Israel to go through that air corridor? They're suspending their missile defense. They're practicing shutting their missile defense down. Where'd they get their missile defense, by the way? from the United States, shutting their missile defense down, shutting their air force down, 
and then starting it back up again after a certain period of time to allow those bombers to go back and forth. Now, Ahmadinejad, is he ready for Israel? Oh, yeah. Why would Saudi Arabia do that? They hate him. They hate the Persians. We got well, This goes back thousands of years. This is Arabs and Persians. They are not friends. They may be Muslims, but you have your Shiite Muslim and you have your Sunni Muslim. And you have to figure out all of that. Anyway, that's enough of that for today. <clears throat> back to the introduction to Romans. Last Sunday, we addressed the course requirements. And there's, of course, requirements when you do... Uh, Romans, and of course, I brought out astronomy as probably the number one, but it's not really astronomy. Sorry, I put a astron. I cannot speak and talk. Astronomy. There we go. And then quantum physics or quantum mechanics, whichever one you want. Both of those are the same because of what they reveal in our creation around us. Those become really important, as does Einstein's theorems with that affect time, time dilation, as I said. Time dilation just means, of course, that time is affected by things. It's affected by gravity, and it's affected by entropy, and uh, it can, of course, uh, reach, uh, if, it, if, if we reach a velocity, it's affected by, that approaches the speed of light. We also see time affected by that. So velocity affects time, gravity affects time, entropy affects time. So all of that's very important, but those two, astronomy and quantum physics, because one teaches you about the very small, the other teaches you about the very large, the size of the universe. Is it infinite? I asked last week. And Troy came up to me and said, no, the size of the universe cannot be infinite. Infinite Infinity is the purview, is the characteristic of who? God. Nothing else can be infinite but him. So it's a finite universe. The secular astronomist will try to tell you that it's an infinite universe. How come? I don't want anything to be infinite except their universe. They certainly don't want an infinite God. And so uh, the size of things is very important. Quantum physics, astronomy, take care of both the big and the small. And, of course, we have to get into the created order or the created matter in the universe. There's just so much of it that's extraordinary. Why did he put it there? How come, as I asked last week, did he not just have the sun, the moon, and the earth? But he doesn't. He has billions and trillions of things Millions and billions of galaxies that have billions and trillions of things in them. And then, of course, you have to figure out if the universe is not infinite, then I'll draw the universe for you. There's the universe. And then the obvious question, what's on the outside of the universe? Are the pre-existent nothing or the void zero? And inside the universe is the void one. So those are both nothings and you have to know you're nothing. So these are the traditional Subjects that are commonly raised in all studies of the Book of Romans. Every time you get a study of the Book of Romans, and most of you have, you've gone to the different organizations in town, and every time you've done it, they've always talked about astronomy and quantum physics and time dilation. I know that's the case. Okay, maybe not all studies do that, but uh, okay, maybe not most studies. Maybe not some studies. This is the only study that's probably the case on the Book of Romans. It's going to do it this way. And why? Because the teacher is crazy? How come everybody that related to me nodded their head? Okay. 
I want you to see that this really is the book of Romans. God's creation is in the book of Romans. And all of this that I just mentioned is derived from verse 20 of chapter 1, the solemn without excuse. You have no excuse. No human being has an excuse. And he uses his created order, both big and small. He uses what he has done to um, expose the fact that you have no excuse. And those who reject the clearly seen, invisible attributes of God, both His creation and the energy that He's using to make His creation work, those who reject that are without excuse. And when they are without excuse and they reject His creative energy that holds it all together, that makes it plus what He made, when they reject that, they become darkened. He gives them over to a debased or a reprobate mind. Romans 1.28. And that's very important. That's the other aspect of Romans that's so incredible. First, we have the created matter and the created energy that makes the created matter, makes the created things work. That's God doing that. You are what? You are a created thing. He is making you work. And if you reject that, He gives you over to a debased Mind, and I'll write debased up here, reprobate, evil, darkened mind. That's why we bring up the Pharaoh, by the way. That's why the Pharaoh is in the book of Romans, because the Pharaoh is given up and given over to a debased mind. But the key word in the, in the phrase debased mind is mind. That's an extraordinary thing he does. What's he saying? What's the book of Romans going to say over and over and over and over again? Besides the created order and the creative energy that holds it all together, it's going to say over and over and over again that you have a mind. God has decided that you need to know that, that you have a mind. And God gives that mind up to evil if you reject him. So it's incumbent upon us to study the clearly seen invisible attributes of God, but it's also very important for us to study the mind, what a debased mind is, how you end up with a debased mind, because the mind is what? See, what's the difference? What did I just say all of this was? This is the created, created entity, if you will, the created order, and it's held together and it's physical in the sense that we can see it and watch it and know what it's doing somewhat. It's so huge we can't understand it, but we would look at it and say that it's matter, it's particles, we can watch it collide, we can watch it disappear, we can watch it move, but what's the mind? See, compare this, compare this to this. What's that? That's non-physical. God says that you have, in fact, He says you are a non-physical person. You are your mind. And your mind is non-material. It's a non-physical entity. It's essence. It's being. It's consciousness. It's existence. It's immortality. It's free will. It's individuality. You know you exist. Don't take that for granted. How do you know you exist? Why do you know you exist? Who else know they exist? How do I know you know you exist? How do you know that I know I exist? How do I know that you know that I know that you know you exist? That's a very complicated sin. And it really makes a lot of sense. 
I'm pretty confident that I exist. How do I know you exist? Do you think about existing? What conclusions have you come to? That's all in the mind. That is a non-material, non-physical entity. And he says, you have one. Not only that, he says, I will allow it to become darkened, debased, reprobate, evil. I will step away and give you up to yourself. And you will become evil. And so this is the discussion. Romans is the discussion of Dualism and monism again. Here we go again. Now you know why we go into Romans, huh? It's immortality versus cessation of existence again. Romans is filled with this. Back we go into that discussion. We must go. It's going to make us that. But notice again that our minds, the human mind, can become corrupt. Have you noticed that? The human mind can become corrupt. That's a big shock to anybody with a child. Especially an infant child. At what age does the infant child become corrupt? What do you think? You're the most, most current experience here. Every, every mother in here will say the first feeding because they'll clamp down and try to kill you. Right? And you've got to smack them. Whatever, you pull one, that one hair. We know that the mind can become corrupt, almost totally corrupt in a human being. We have seen it. You have this, I don't know, I can't pronounce his name correctly, Johan van der Soot is probably the latest on television. He is obviously an extraordinarily evil person, but there have been evil people before him. If you study evil, it is tiny little steps. You know, It is not a surprise that people keep killing and keep doing evil things. Uh, that is the natural progression. You, your mind can become debased. It can become degenerate. It can become decayed. It can become non-functional. It can be destroyed. And yet you're still alive. And that's a fascinating thing. That's what he says. The mind can go into utter darkness. God will let those who so will enter into the second death. And that causes a lot of questions, all of which begin with the radical. And when I say radical, see, this is, you you have what's called radical dualism. I don't know how many of you were here when I first put this up. I know it was at the other building. You have radical dualism versus reductive or materialistic or material monism. I'll just call it monism. Monism says you're physical only when you cease to, uh, or when you die, you cease to exist, and the brain is dependent or the mind is dependent upon the physicality being alive. Radical dualism says no. What there is instead is there's this intertwining, there's this um, interconnection between a non-material mind, which Romans starts out by saying you have a non-material mind that is controlling a material body. Okay? That is the difference. And that's where we are. How does it work? How can we figure it out? Why does Romans talk about it so much? Now, let's ask you a bunch of questions. My mom, I got a call from my sister at three in the morning about my mom. She had two teeth pulled. And I don't know if you've seen her here, but they put her on painkillers. They don't know if she's feeling pain because she can't communicate. She's in complete total Alzheimer's. She has the, um, uh, she has the, 
seemingly she can express the intellect of a child. That's the best she can do. So she can't communicate. They assume that she's in pain because everybody else who's had those teeth pulled has told them it hurts. So they give a painkiller. Painkillers to an Alzheimer's patient is a very, very difficult problem. And so there she is in Alzheimer's. So we have to figure out how Alzheimer's, what's it doing? We've got to talk about memory loss. Do I have memory loss? Do I have memory loss? Do I have memory loss? I have memory loss. I know I have memory loss. Why do I have memory loss? If I am a supernatural mind, and I am, how do I explain Alzheimer's? How do I explain brain injury? How do I explain memory loss? Memory loss has is, is got extremes. Memory loss is a good thing. Memory loss helps you get through life. Otherwise, you would be doing what? You would be constantly hitting your face with a hammer because of your stupidity. So memory loss is a good thing. We would. There are people that have no memory loss. Have you read about them or talked about or ever seen them on TV? They're on the, um, the Discovery Health Channel. They may remember everything their whole lives, and they have extraordinarily crushing emotional problems. And all they do is remember everything. It isn't good. Perfect memory is bad if you have sin. Because all you do is think about the sin. So some memory loss is good, but complete memory loss is bad. How do we explain memory loss? And sin obviously degenerates the mind. That's, and it also decays the body. There's no debate about that. So the physical deterioration has an effect on the mind. And what are the attributes of a degenerate mind, by the way? We'll have to do that. And how do we explain brain injuries? There's famous cases where guys have had the frontal lobes removed or frontal lobes affected or they've had other brain parts affected and it has changed their personality. How do I explain that? If I have a supernatural mind, it should be unaffected, right? By a physical injury to the brain, right? That could be a trick question. How do we explain multiple personality, personality changes, disorders, Alzheimer's, as I said, coma? How do you explain sleep? What's happening to the mind when you are sleeping? How do you explain drug-altered state? What's occurring? Mind development is obvious. Mind development occurs. It's obvious. See it in a child. We have a lot of mind development. The child develops and develops and develops, and it's amazing to watch a child develop, right? And then the child gets to be about 16, completely stops developing, and goes completely the opposite direction for about 15 years. And then we start to have development again. So we see the mind do this, don't we? But then at the end of life, we see the mind begin to decay. What is happening to a decaying mind? Why does the, how is it that a supernatural mind can decay? We know it can because sin can make it decay, can't we? The old thing, you know, the, the, the old commercial, they, they put the frying pan on the fire and they throw a couple of eggs in there and make all the noise, right? And they say, that's your mind on drugs. You can destroy your mind. And that's obvious that we can. We witness deterioration. But how exactly does it happen? This is the book of Romans. This is what the book of Romans talks to you about. 
what is occurring within the connections between the supernatural mind and the material body. I started out by saying it's radical. In other words, it's very intertwined, the connection between the supernatural mind and the physical brain. How does it work? Now, if you take just a cursory trek through the Internet, I had a lot of fun doing that the other day. It, I had a neighbor come over. How much time do I got today? Oh, I'm already way behind. I had a neighbor come by because he obviously feels sorry for us. Hi, Al. If you're listening to this, we appreciate you very much. But, uh, Al came over and, and he brought me uh, apple crisp and lasagna for breakfast. Now, is that a great neighbor or what? It's, you don't get any better than that. Apple crisp and lasagna for, for breakfast. But he asked me how I was doing because he watches me pull out every morning or most mornings and me and Bill. He watches me and Bill get in the vehicle. And he just he's a professional. He's a medical professional. His wife's a doctor. He's a, an RN. And he watches us just get in the vehicle. And he knows this can't be good, whatever these guys are doing. He knows a little bit about me. But he's asking me how I was feeling physically. And I'm just kind of staring at him. I said, well, let's see. On Friday, I have a 138-inch stud with a 10-degree pitch, and I have to move over 15 and a quarter inches. So that means that that's the tangent of a 10-degree angle, and that means that if I move 15 and a quarter inches, the tangent is the opposite uh, over the adjacent, and the tangent of a 10-degree angle is 0.1763, so that means that uh, I have to move up 2 and 11 sixteenths inches to the short of a 10-degree angle. He's just looking at me like I'm crazy, because I am crazy. And then I come home on Saturday, and I have to figure out uh, self-awareness and, uh, and, and radical dualism versus monism and and brains and how they interact. I just go, I'm really, really tired. And I really am. It's, it's the absolute opposite. One of it is math. I can do math pretty good sometimes. And if I can't do math, I have what? That's right, I have a sawzall. I can fix it. But, but to come from math to this just causes me all kinds. I just sit there and stare at my papers a lot. So I wanted you to feel sorry for me, and somebody did, and they brought me Kentucky Fried Chicken. Okay. Anyway, you go on through the Internet, which I was doing, just driving myself nuts, watching all these different arguments on how the people try to reconcile brain matter destruction or disease with the supernatural mind. And they're convinced, most of the atheists and most of the cessationists of existence, all the monists, all the evolutionists, they're convinced that brain injuries or brain disease, personality disorders, that's proof that this mind that we all have, the consciousness that we all have, is dependent upon the brain being physically healthy. And, and their motto is, is when the brain dies, the mind dies. And some of you are reading the book that I have always recommended that you read, uh, Dr. Uh, Edgar Andrews, Who Made God. It's a fabulous, uh, um, I wouldn't say it's a beginner, but it is close uh, to the front, so you can't be overwhelmed by it. Don't, I recommend it highly. He has the horse and the rider thing. You've heard me do that, where they, they will say that the mind, and that's a horse, is a shadow of the horse. And so when the horse dies, the shadow goes away. Where the dualist says, no, 
the horse has a rider. And when the horse dies, the rider is still there. That's the debate, right? Horse shadow, horse rider. But when they, they say confidently, when the brain dies, the mind dies. Never say anything confidently. That's the first thing that gets you in trouble. I, my first question, of course, is I don't ever, I never want to argue with them very often because I know it's fruitless. But I do want to know why they wish it to be true. Why do you wish to cease to exist? Why do you wish that when your body dies, your existence also dies? Why do you want that? There's a reason they want it. See, that opens up the entire debate. Why do they want that? If I had one of them sitting here, he'd be jumping up and down, proclaiming that when he dies, he's going to cease to exist, and so will all of you. First question is why you want it. That will stun them every time. They expect you to argue the merits of of brain injuries with them, but I never do. I always start with why. I know why they do. Why do they want to cease to exist? Yell it out for me. That's right. They want to get around that judgment thing. They don't want to be held accountable for their life. They want to avoid judgment. Why do they hate God? Because God is going to judge them, and they hate it. He has no right to judge me, they will tell me all the time. I don't care if he created me. He has no right to judge me. I don't care if he holds me together. He has no right to hold me accountable. I don't care if he has created all things. I have the right to sin as much as I want with no recourse. That's what they say. That's what it's about. If you believe you cease to exist, it is because you want to sin. And you want no punishment for sin. That's what it means. That's where we are. Okay. Brain dies, the mind dries, is proven by brain injuries, Alzheimer's, caffeine. Really? I throw caffeine in there because I have some. But they really do think that. If only the Cartesian philosophy, Rene Descartes, if only Descartes had caffeine, he would never have come up with radical dualism. He didn't come up with radical dualism. Radical dualism came up where? The Bible. Dualism says the opposite. Actually, substance dualism says the opposite. I should define substance dualism. Substance dualism states that the mind is a different substance than the brain. The brain is a physical substance. The mind is a immaterial substance. And you've heard me say this many, many times. The brain is comprised of physical, chemical materials, and the mind is a supernatural, immaterial substance. And this is a fundamental biblical principle. You cannot believe the Bible if you don't start here. Nefesh Kaya, living soul. He, the Bible says, we are living souls. We have an immaterial, supernatural mind that is of a different substance than our physical brain. That's substance dualism. And and substance dualism submits that the mind experiences these physical realities. Now, we can debate Berkeley again. Berkeley says there aren't any physical realities, but we we can debate that another day. But substance dualism submits that the mind experiences what we call physical reality through brain processes and activity. Does that make sense? The ghost in the machine, if you will. So the mind experiences these physical realities. Define how it is that you see. Do you see, you see, you see, don't you, where? 
in your mind. You feel in your mind. You experience these physical realities as much as they are physical realities, as much as they are realities. How come we have reality? Because God thinks it into existence. So the reality is where? In his mind. And we experience what's in his mind. And by the way, we're also in his mind. We experience what's in his mind through these physical properties that he has given us. Okay? So, substance dualism, let me repeat it, submits that the mind experiences the physical realities through brain processes and activities. The mind is the person. You are your mind. Your body has no input on your being or your essence or your person in the sense of defining you. Substance dualism also proposes that the mind, once it, once it takes in this information, processes all of these chemicals, decides what... It takes a bunch of chemicals in, the brain all lights up physically, the mind then does what? It says, that's the color red. How do you know that your definition of the color... How do you know you're seeing the same red that I'm seeing? Lots of people don't see the same red. If I asked Christopher to come up here, he'd point at uh, Amanda's blouse, and what would you call it? What would you call it besides, I wish she hadn't bought it? No, what would you call it? Pink. Would you call it pink? And he's serious, by the way. See, his mind is looking at the information the electrical processes in his brain, and it is making a decision that that is pink. I make the decision that it's just kind of weird looking. No, um, I'm kidding, Amanda. Did you bring me the Kentucky Fried Chicken? Have you brought me Cheez-Its lately? When I rewired your switches, did I get Cheez-Its? Did I get Cheez-Its when I rewired your switches? Yes or no? Almost. Were you opposed to me getting Cheez-Its? Okay. Just checking. It's a lovely blouse. And it's mostly red. That's what I would say. What would you say it is? It's pink. I'm looking at it thinking, that's a nice red blouse. But you see, how do I know that... See, I am looking at this physical reality, but I don't... And, and the information is going into my brain, and my mind is analyzing that information. And then I am animated by my mind. And it's an intertwining, as I said, the ghost in the machine. It's an interconnection. And if I have a physical injury or a narcotic, or then the information coming to my mind is what? It's affected. So what does my mind do with that information? It's getting bad information. If, if I'm writing up here, for example, let me help you with this. If I'm seeing this, we call this dyx I can't even say it. Dyslexia. Oh. If I see that, and you see the opposite, you see this. Oh. I can barely do it. And you see that. How am I going, how's my mind going to be affected by this? I'm getting, my mind, because I have a brain injury, can't process the information it's getting. How is it now affected by that? Suppose I'm a child, how do I develop? 
My mother is in a position where no information coming into her brain is able to make any sense to her. And she can't get anything out. Every now and then she does. Every now and then, out of nowhere, she will say something uh, that is, uh, frankly, remarkable. She looked at my sister the other day, gritted her teeth, and said, wet. Which meant what? Wet. We have problems. Diaper central. Here we go. She got it out. Wet. She can't make her body animate properly. She can't move her hands correctly. Her body won't function. The information coming in makes no sense to her. At least we can't tell because she can't let us know if it does. And a lot of this information coming into her absolutely makes no sense. How do I know that? Because Susie plays my CDs for her every week. And I'm going to hear about it someday. If there's a physical energy injury or a narcotic, the information coming in is unreadable. And the system that expresses itself Outwardly, the animation is dysfunctional as well, and the mind is affected by it. Undecipherable information coming in, and it cannot send forth information that can be interpreted correctly, if at all. See, lots of things cause the mind to be affected. Loneliness. Loneliness causes the mind to be affected. Drug altered, as you know. Depression alters the mind. Hate alters the mind. Selfishness alters the mind. Evil alters the mind. Addictive behavior alters the mind. Grief alters the mind. What have I seen as the worst in my lifetime? Lovesick. One of these 18-year-olds come to me, they're just debilitated by it. They can't function. They're absolutely frozen and paralyzed. Their minds are totally destroyed. And you just wait for them to come out of it, okay? The mind can and is affected by what it perceives. That's radical dualism. Physical sickness. You can make yourself sick. You know that. Your mind can make you sick. Happens all the time. Depression, first and foremost. How is it possible that something that has no physical properties can affect a physical property? Does it all the time. So we have to come to, we've got to work through this. This will cause us to enter to, into arenas uh, of self-awareness, or sometimes called inverted qualia, as opposed to absent qualia. Self-awareness. How do I learn of your self-awareness? How do I know that you're self-aware? How do I know? You tell me that you are. I have a dog. I have two, sort of. There's four you could count. How do I know those dogs are self-aware? Can they communicate with me? Are they self-aware? Do you know that if you put a mirror in front of a porpoise, the porpoise or the dolphin recognizes itself instantly? How's it doing that? Okay, so we're back to philosophy. Astronomy, quantum physics, and philosophy. That's what's going on in Romans. In any event, reductionism or materialism cannot, does not, will not provide an explanation for the existence of grief. There should be no grief. You're just a physical process. Your mind is a physical result. That's all they say. should be no grief. Grief is a metaphysical feeling. How do I get a feeling out of a physical process? They cannot and they will not and they do not 
provide an explanation for the existence of fear, bitterness, ideas, love, goodness, hate, pain, feelings, free will, etc. It goes on and on. How does a purely physical process cause purely immaterial events? can't happen. Now, they'll bring up Occam's razor, which says if you have a simple idea uh, or a simple solution, that's probably the best solution. Occam never said that. He said the simplest solution that has all the elements in it is the one that is most likely correct. The fact that your, that your brain dies and your mind dies doesn't take into account all of the uh, elements, and therefore Occam's razor would oppose it. So you'll run into that all the time. It's all over the Internet. It goes on and on and on. Anyway, the Book of Romans launches us into this, something we should have expected. And one of my goals is for all of you, upon the conclusion of our Roman study, actually after chapter 3, to be able to do what Hebrews 5.14 says. Reason your way through this. Reason your way through this existence atheism and their litany of typical arguments, all of which come from a central agenda. God calls them uh, haters of God, Romans 1.30. Actually, more specifically, as I said, they are haters of God who judges them. Okay. Once you establish the motive of the monistic atheists picking apart their, uh, their little diatribes, becomes really simple. Their best weapons are really very tiny little pea shooters and squirt guns, and they're firing it from a little tiny bathtub rowboat, and you have an aircraft carrier. And that isn't even doing it justice. Don't be afraid of them. They are foolishness, foolish arguments. They don't like me saying that, but I don't know what else to say. And if they intimidate you, if you're wondering, if you walked into a coffee house and said you were a radical dualist after a Cartesian traditional dualist, and they thumped you pretty good and you went home crying, which is what? A metaphysical reaction. Don't think you were beaten. You just weren't prepared. It's very important when studying Romans to be aware of what he says about the mind. I'm going to read just a little bit to you, and then we'll move on quickly. Okay, here we go. Eight, five, Romans. Don't have to turn. We don't have time. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. What's he saying over and over again? You have a mind. You are your mind. You've got to know about your mind, how your mind works. Because the carnal mind is at war against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 12, 2. You're going to see this all the time in Romans. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what it is that, that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Okay? The mind of God, the mind of Christ, the mind of the Spirit of God. Obviously, God has a mind. This is all inside of God's mind. If you want to think of it that way, we are what? We are a figment of God's mind. He imagines us and we exist. Now, he put laws and processes in order to his mind, if you will, in the sense that it all follows a predictable system. But he can change it any time he wants. And Scripture, his Scripture, emphasizes what about him? What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to know his mind. 
It's what he wants. Conform to his ways. Seek out his thoughts. Value what he values. Changing our minds from ourselves to that which is godly, that which endures. Okay, let's start the sermon, Romans 1. He's kidding, isn't he? No, he's not. Remember, I told you it was all introductory. What did you get so far out of the last two sermons? I hope that all you got, at least what you got, is that Romans is about astronomy and quantum physics because that's proof that God is here, the invisible clearly seen, and you have no excuse. And I hope you got that you have a mind, and your mind is in control of your body, and it is immortal, and it survives death. That's what Romans is about. So here we go, Romans 1, 1 through 6, going fast now. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ. This is an Exodus reference where the owl is put into the ear in front of the gate, in front of the elders. So he calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ. He has the pierced ear, if you will. Called to be an apostle. Separated or dedicated to the gospel of God. Wow! That's an incredible thing, what he just said. Which he promised before through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Man, how does that work? And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. That's a lot. It's going to take us a long time to get through that. Through him we have renewed, received grace. That gets you killed, saying that, back in those days. Through Him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for His name among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ. Okay? Bunch of stuff here. Can't possibly take all of it. It's so much. We're going to pick out a couple of three. First, this is the monster verse. Romans 1.4. Declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by, by the resurrection of the dead. This is Proverbs 30, verse 4, Son of God. Son of God, Proverbs 30, verse 4, is a title that is it's an identifier, if you will. John 1:34. it's an identifier that means that Jesus Christ is the same as God. Jesus Christ has the same essence. He's sameness, if you will. He's exactly the same as Creator God. He's equal to God. He is fully God. That's what Christ, or Paul starts out by saying the Holy Spirit has him say that. Now, what proves it in that sentence? Jesus Christ has the sameness that is God. What proves it? Something proves it. Something is conclusive. The most conclusive evidence that He's God is what? What did you say? Resurrection. Absolutely right. Missy gets two A's. Why does she get two? It's not fair. Why does she get two? That's not fair. She shouldn't get two. Why does she get two? One, she got the answer right. Two, what? Still awake. That's right. Two A's. There's always an A for being awake. Ask anybody. Jesus Christ is proven to be God by his resurrection. That which proves Jesus Christ is God is his resurrection. And by the way, 1 Corinthians 15, 14 through 17 says, His resurrection, our salvation is dependent upon his resurrection. Would you have said that that which proves that he is God, the most conclusive evidence is his resurrection? Would you have said that? I hope you would, because that's the case. But most people wouldn't say that. They would say what? What proves he's God? 
his miracles. He, you know, I mean, he walked on water, and that was pretty cool. He walked through people, now that's really cool. Controlled the wind, that's really cool. How big is the universe? That's really big. Walking on water, that's equal to creating the universe? To you? What proves that he's God, creator God, is his resurrection. Obvious question. What is distinct? What makes Christ's resurrection so very important? How is it that it is definitive proof? Okay? Next, number two. Can you answer that? Can any of you pass your papers forward after class? Can any of you answer that? What is so special about his resurrection? How many people have been resurrected? Lazarus has been resurrected. The guy that fell on Elijah's bones has been resurrected, right? People came out of the tombs at the time of his crucifixion resurrected, right? How many resurrections have we got? Elijah? He doesn't even resurrect. He just goes. Enoch just goes. We got a lot of resurrections, don't we? Two, two uh, witnesses in the middle of the square, they're going to be resurrected. Why is it that Christ's resurrection is so important and it proves he's God? Got to know. Your salvation depends on that. You have to know. Next, number two. This phrase, separated to the gospel of God. That's an amazing thing. Literally, the gospel of God is what? What's the gospel mean? You can do this. You all went to Sunday school. You all got your, your skittles. What does gospel mean? Good news. In fact, you have little Bibles. Good news. It means good news. And this good news was something that was promised in the Holy Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures of the Old Testament. The good news of Jesus Christ was promised in the Old Testament. The good news. That's really amazing. Why is that amazing? What's the Bible filled with? By the way, the good news is all Christ. Um, uh, what it means is, is, is only Christ. There's no good news that isn't Christ. Apart from Christ, all other news from the Bible is what? What is it? Do I have any other good news? I don't. Everything in the Bible is woe. Everything else is woe. There's one good news, everything else, bad news. Read the Bible. Bad news. This is the only good news. You have a book filled to the brim with what? Bad news. Except for the gospel. And the gospel is just Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, 5. I, ha I make known to you the gospel, the good news, which I preach to you. Christ died, Christ buried, Christ rose, Christ seen. That's good news. That's the only good news. Everything else, bad news. You really see that in the book of Revelation. Bad news, more bad news. Here's some bad news coming. Uh-oh, bad news. How's the weather? Bad. What's happening today? Rocks falling on us. Bad. What? Tomorrow's weather report? Fire. After that, disease. Okay? Then they're going to kill you, those of you who survived. Bad news. The only good news in all the Bible? Right here. Gospel. And it is about Christ. And what is it? Christ died. Christ was buried. Christ rose. Christ was seen. The good news, the gospel, is all Jesus Christ, promised in the Old Testament. Third, Christ was born of the seed of David. Literally, it means made of the seed of David. Ah, ah. The e eternal, preexistent, divine God is born in the line of David. How does that work? What is that called theologically? 
That's called the hypostatic union. And also the Davidic covenant. How much do you know about the Davidic covenant? You can't get through the first five verses of the book of Romans without dealing with why is his resurrection so important? Because it's critically important and you can't get past the hypostatic union and you can't get past the Davidic covenant. Everybody who is... How many covenants are there? Here, hang on, let me ask that question again. How many covenants are there? I'll try again. How many covenants are there? Eight! Yo! I'm so excited. Everybody on the CDs make note that the entire congregation got that question right. What does the Davidic covenant say? Why do I have a Davidic covenant? Why did Christ have to be born in the seed of David or made unto the seed of David? And it implies that I have a pre-existing Christ, eternal Christ, but yet I have a historical beginning. How does that work? You've got to be very, very careful here. You've got to tread slow. Made of the seed of David, as I said, implies a historical beginning to the eternal outside of time I am. That doesn't make any sense because he's the Luke 135 holy thing. It's very difficult to understand. There's great wisdom here. If you can get through that verse, you're on your way. He is the fulfillment of the Davidic promise. Obviously, we must become expert on the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. Okay? What's the sign of the Davidic covenant? I ha- All the covenants have a sign, right? What's the sign of the Noetic covenant? Come on. What's that? Rainbow. Did somebody say rainbow? That's the sign of the Noetic covenant. Why is the rainbow the sign of the Noetic covenant? He says, he said, I'm going to give you a sign. But why, why did he pick that? Why not pick... A hummingbird. Do you know we have four hummingbird species in Alaska? We have the Anna hummingbird, don't we, dear? What's the other three? And we have the Costa hummingbird. So we thought we'd put out little bird feeders and catch all the Anna hummingbirds. Never mind. Is there a humming moth? I didn't know that. Okay. But why is the sign of the Davidic covenant, what is the sign? Why is the sign of the Noadic covenant a rainbow? It could have been anything. It could have been a Buick. Why did he pick a rainbow? That seems kind of silly. But that's what he picked. It therefore can't be what? Can't be silly. If you think it's silly, you're in trouble. What's the sign of the Davidic covenant? The birth of God as a son. The son the sign of the Davidic covenant is the Luke 1, 30 through 35, holy thing son. So he puts himself into humanity, adds humanity to his eternal preexistence, and he is born and he is the sign of the Davidic covenant. Okay? He is the seed of David. And then you have this wonderful symmetry that's starting to show up. And let me just rush through it here really fast. Born and declared. You will see that relationship. Born, declared. According to the flesh, you'll see. And it corresponds to according to the Spirit. Of the seed of David corresponds to by the resurrection from the dead. That correspondence, that's going to help you fit it all and figure it all out, how it all goes together. It quickly becomes obvious that Paul, through the Holy Spirit, is establishing something. He is establishing what is called pre-resurrection 
a pre-resurrection stage and a post-resurrection stage. That's what he's going to do in the book of Romans, okay? So he divides Christ, if you will, if you can. He divides everything, especially his ministry, into a pre-resurrection stage and a post-resurrection stage. And then he begins to compare and contrast them so that you will be able to understand it. What is never contrasted or compared, however, is the person of Christ. He's always God in both stages, okay? Now... Let me put it this way. Everything in the incarnate life of our Lord Jesus Christ, what would be called his earthly ministry, moves towards his resurrection. Everything after his resurrection, everything subsequent, rests upon the resurrection and is conditioned by it. Thus, we must have an understanding of the resurrection of Christ. And the last thing, the other grand clue that you need to know about the book of Romans, and this concludes our introduction, is what I call King Saul. I did this a little bit last week. King Saul and Saul Paul. Right? Obviously, this relationship is here. I have a relationship with King Saul with the apostle Saul. And the relationship is they both killed the same kind of people. God has set some people up to represent something, and they both killed them. Saul Paul killed who? Christian Jews. Christian Jews are people that are saved by what? Because all other Jews believe they were saved by what? All the non-Christian Jews today believe they are saved by what? Being Jews by the law. The Christian Jews didn't believe they were saved by the law. They believed they were saved by what? Grace through faith, belief alone in the blood of Christ. That's what they believed. What did Paul, what did Saul do to them? He rushed out to murder every single one he could find. Saul did the same thing. King Saul did the same thing. Who did King Saul kill? He killed the Gibeonites. Who were the Gibeonites? The Gibeonites were a group of guys that show up when Israel is invading, invading the promised land. Israel has this Ark of the Covenant. They got Joshua, and they're wiping people out. It ain't good news. Once again, it's bad news. Bunch of dead people everywhere Israel goes. And the Gibeonites thought, we don't want to be killed. So they invent this scheme. They come and they got tattered clothes and they got old bread and they got bad shoes and they got bad breath and they say, Hey, we're not around from here. We came from Egypt. We've been following you. And we finally caught you. And um, hey, how about giving us a treaty where you won't kill us? In the meantime, they actually lived in the promised land and God said, Go in and kill them. Joshua said, Okay, we will make an oath with you and we will not kill you. Then they found out it was a lie. And what did the people of Israel want to do? They wanted to kill them. What did God say? Can't kill the Gibeonites. Can't kill them. We promised them they would be saved. So they are saved by what? By a promise. What is that? They actually lied, sneaky little Gibeonites. If you're going to be something in life, be a Gibeonite. And they became the dedicated temple workers. That's what they became. And they were saved. And every time God said, don't you touch these people. Don't you touch them. They are saved by my promise. My promise through Yeshua. 
because the name for Joshua is identical to the name for Christ. They both mean salvation. They're spelled the same. Everything is the same. Yeshua, Joshua, promised the Gibeonites that they would not be killed. They would be safe. That's a what? That's salvation by what? By grace. And who killed them? King Saul killed them. How'd that go? That is bad news. More bad news. So this is what we got to do to understand the book of Romans. You got to understand astronomy. You got to understand quantum physics. You got to know about radical dualism. You got to know how your mind is affected, how it's debased, how you become evil, how you get the mind of God in contrast. You got to learn all of that. Then you got to move on to the hypostatic union. You have to understand attacking the doctrine of salvation alone through grace alone by faith in Christ alone is bad news. Don't ever do that. Now you're on your way to the next five verses in the book of Romans. Let's rise and be dismissed.